want to start with a kasha that somebody raised based on, on last week's shear. It's an extremely important kasha, and it's a very subtle point that could easily be misunderstood, and it's crucial. We explained that you can resolve any educational challenge with three things, planting, building, and prayer. That, that is the whole thing. There is nothing else to the program. We also said that it's possible you can do everything perfectly and the kid could not come out okay. That's possible, God forbid. So how is that shayach? So the answer is like this. Bichlal, in Avodah Hashem, you always have to separate between hishtadlis and results. The Jew gets paid for hishtadlis, but in the final analysis, the results are in the Kodesh Baruch Hu's hands. So let's use a very extreme example of this, and then with this extreme example, we'll then understand how parenting works better. A Kodesh Baruch Hu recreates the universe at every single moment. Because of that, it's possible for him to control, not, not because of that, but this is one of the ways that he controls everything that happens in the universe. That is, in theory, I cannot lift my hand. The emphasis is I cannot lift my hand. When, when my hand goes up, what's really going on? I, was, I have a God-given ability to fire a free will request up to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, Hashem, may I please move my hand? When I fire that free will request up, Hashem, in most cases, responds by causing my hand to move. And what he does is he recreates my hand in a new position every single microsecond until my hand actually ends up in a higher position. But so, so, if it's Hashem that's lifting my hand, Hashem He causes everything in the universe to happen. It doesn't say chutzmi action. I don't even have the ability to, to act. All I have the ability to do is to register these free will requests with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, what do I want to do? And the thing is, since I was a child, I became accustomed to having such instantaneous response to my free will requests that I began to think that it's actually me in charge. But the reality is that it's, it's, it's not, forget about that, it's not me that wins the war. It's not even me that lifts my hand. Everything is a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Okay, now, part of the a vote of a person in this world is to be Megala Yehudo, that is to reveal that the same Hashem that split the Red Sea, the same Hashem that brought the plagues, the same Hashem that made all the Niflaus in Mitzrayim, as the Ramban says in Parshas Bo, it is that Hashem who causes everything that appears to us to be quote-unquote nature. He said, in the end of Parshas Bodhra, a famous Ramban, he says that there's no mikra, there's no teva in, in, in the world. It's all a Kodesh Baruch Hu. It's just that when a Kodesh Baruch Hu consistently reacts to our free will request in a certain way, we start assuming that that's nature. Now, with this in mind, you understand that, let's say a person... Let's use a gross example. A person could jog and eat a low-fat diet and do everything right and, God forbid, have a terrible health problem related to high blood pressure or 
or you know, clotting of the arteries or whatever, God forbid, the case is. How is that Shaykh? He did all the proper Ishtadlis, right? Alpitev, it really shouldn't have happened. So, so, for Kodesh Baruch who's in charge. Why is it then, since you could do everything right and still, God forbid, have a heart attack, God forbid, then why is it that I would do everything right? Why bother? I'm not going to get the results that I want. So the answer is, I never do a vote of Hashem for results. That's not the reason I do it. Why do I put on tefillin in the morning? Not so that I'll learn better. That's not why I put on tefillin. If I'm putting on so I'll, so, so I'll learn better, that's not called lishma. Lishma means I'm doing it because the Kodesh Baruch Hu asked. It makes the Kodesh Baruch Hu happy. I want to make the Kodesh Baruch Hu happy. It makes the Kodesh Baruch Hu happy when I put on tefillin. I, the Pesach says that it, there'll be Torah in my mouth as a result of this, but that's not why I do it. I don't jog to avoid heart attacks. I jog because the Kodesh Baruch Hu said, Lishmarti modus not shaseichem. Right? And I don't keep Shabbos, right, to keep my blood pressure low. Even though there are certain benefits that you get from keeping mitzvahs, that's not why you do it. You do it because Hashem said. Okay. In the exact same way that I keep Shabbos because Hashem asked, why is it that I'm mechanach my, my child properly? Because there's a pasuk, v'shinantam levenecho. I have a chiyuv of being mechanach my kid. Since I have a chiyuv of being mechanach my kid, I'm mechanach my kid. Right? I'm not doing it for the sake of results. And the reality is, so so if Hashem is in charge, and I could do everything right and not get the result. Now, you are correct. Most times that I say, hand, please go up, it goes up. Most people who would eat a low-fat, low-salt, low-sugar diet end up not having problems of hypertension, right? And most people who follow the rules of chinuch end up having their kids come out good. But there's no guarantee because it's all Kodesh Baruch Hu Sof Sof. And whatever happens is an ace, so therefore, it's possible you could do everything properly and not get the results. Be careful. Am I saying, so don't bother doing Hishtavas? Chas v'shalom. It's a mitzvah, vodas Hashem. You have, to, you have to plant, you have to build, and you have to pray. Aye, but you might not get the result you want. That's not what you were doing it anyways. Yeah? This is very clear? Good. Okay. <coughs> One thing that I want you to start thinking about now, and it's extremely important to think about this, otherwise, Mamish, the whole seminar is not, not going to have a toelis. Start now contemplating child-raising challenges that you have, the biggest problems that you face, and start talking over with your wife, how could we, in theory, how could we plant, build, and pray these problems out of existence? If we were going to plant, what would we do? If we were going to build, what would we do? If we were going to pray, what would we do? Start, start thinking now. Why that? Those would be good questions to start to ask. Is how do you plant, build, and pray chutzpah out of existence? How do you plant, build, and pray um, kids who don't do their homework out of existence? How do you plant, build, and pray a kid who won't go to sleep at night, who's crying, he wants to stay up with his parents? How do you plant, build, and pray that out of existence? These are the questions you want to start contemplating. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go into the practice right now because I want to continue to give you clawing. We're barely going to fit the clawing in four sessions, but. Those are the questions you want to start asking me in, 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 the, in the Q&A sessions. Hopefully at the end we'll have 15 minutes for Q&A. That's the kind of thing that you want to start getting to. If you can work out in your head how to do it and then present your idea and let me fine-tune it, you'll start to see how to use the system. <coughs> Fine. Okay. Let's hit the next series of clawing. The first two items on our 
agenda for tonight are items that we didn't, we failed to get to last week. Seasons and customized education. For a minute, let's talk about seasons. We said last time that woven into the fabric of the universe are certain realities. For instance, there's the reality of organic growth. That reality manifests itself by plants, it manifests itself by human beings, manifests itself other places as well, in history. Once you understand that there is a truth in the world called organic growth, then when you start relating to a kid, you have to start thinking, if this was a plant, how would I relate to the plant? One of the first things a farmer considers when a farmer is about to put out a crop is, what is the appropriate season for planting this crop? If you plant too early, the seed rots in the ground. If you plant too late, the thing will sprout up and wither. You've got to hit the season on the nose. By human beings, there are also seasons. Sometimes the season comes once in a lifetime. Sometimes the seasons return on themselves. I'll give you an example. There was a horrible series of natural, quote-unquote, experiments that happened when children somehow got separated from their parents. And they ended up growing up alone in a basement, in a forest. They have a half a dozen of such cases recorded in the, in the, in the psychological literature. And the, the, these kids, of course, they were terribly, terribly damaged by not having access to adults until you know, they were 3, 5, 10, 12 years old. When these kids were discovered, invariably they were handed over to a group of psychologists who assumed, well, we'll just fix the kids up. We'll teach them all the things they need to know now. They've been isolated from society. We'll just catch them up. So one of the most shocking discoveries was that past a certain window, the children could not be taught language. That is, there's a certain point in the child's life when the language window opens. And if you miss that window, then the window closes and it is not possible for a human being ever again to learn language. Interesting, the Gemara says that from the moment the child starts to speak, we should be malamed the child. Okay, now there seems to be a little bit of a steer between the Medrash and the Gemara, exactly what you're supposed to be malamed the child. The, the Gemara says you should teach the child Torah and Kriyat Shema. The Medrash says that you should start to speak with the child in Lashon Kodesh and teach him Torah. A little bit of a stir. The, the truth is, the issue with the stir probably is that the Medrash was written in Eretz Yisrael. In Eretz Yisrael, so the lingua franca was Lashon Kodesh. And if the lingua franca is Lashon Kodesh, if that's what people speak, so then chaval for the child to learn Torah in any other language, because learning Torah in a language besides Lashon Kodesh is um, it, it, it waters down the content. The, the translation gets in the way. So in Eretz Yisrael they said, teach your kid Lashon Kodesh and 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 uh, and, and start teaching him Torah. Amar of Hamnuna, right? Rav Hamnuna said, my Torah. What kind of Torah are you going to teach a kid when they first are able to speak? What was the kasha? Well, from Nuna's kasha was, when does a child start to speak? So you folks know, 
Yeah, at the least you all have young children. A few months after the child is born, the kid starts going, and of course, if you watch the child grow up, what you find is that slowly becomes food. And over the period of many, many months, you realize the child, as he gains muscle control, he was actually speaking from the beginning, and the word just became more and more and more clear. Yeah? Women are especially sensitive to this because they watch the child changing day by day. So when does a child start to speak? A kid might start to speak at three months, six months. I mean, like really talking, even though it sounds like they're gurgling. Yeah? But they, they already might be speaking, and sort of Rav Nuna had a good karasha. He said, like, what kind of Torah are you going to teach that kid? You know, Hilchashatnes? What are you going to teach him? So the more of their answers, you should teach him Torah Tzivalano Moshe. Bichlau, it's a, it's a very strange answer of the Gemara. Why? Because the, in Ashkafa, you see the Torah's bias is towards mitzvahs maisios. Yeah, things that you can do physically. So you would expect the first mitzvah to be something like, you know, teach the kid the laws of Kriyat or teach, teach, you know, teach, teach the kids to give tzedakah, or something like this. So the first thing you teach the kid is Torah Tzivlan Moshe. So of course, it's a very, very, very deep lesson. The Torah starts off not with a building, but with a planting. The planting is the first stage. And the hashkafa that is planted in the child is that the very first generation of Jews ever did not learn Torah from Kodesh Baruch Hu. The very first generation of Jews learned Torah from Arav. There was never a generation that learned Torah from Kodesh Baruch Hu. They all learned Torah from Arav. And therefore, our Masori is that if you want access to Torah, all the Torah is really a Torah Shabbat Peh. If you want access to Torah, you have to get yourself a Rav. And so the very, very, very first thing that we teach our kids is the same thing that's repeated twice in the first Perk of, 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 of uh, Perk Avos. Say, like a Rav, get yourself a Rav and learn Torah from a Rav. That's the very, very first seed that we plant. Ah, so back on track. What do we see? That as soon as the window opens to start teaching language to a child, we jump on it because the season has begun. And you've got to plant as soon as the season begins so as not to miss the window. Let's go to a practical example of where we get into trouble because we plant too early or too late. If you want to burn a kid out on learning Torah, bless you, the best way to do it is to ignore the season and teach the child some sort of limud that he is not intellectually prepared to handle. What ends up happening is, because the child can't do it, so A, he gets no thrill from it. B, when he can master the material, he's bored with it. Because he's seen it so many times. And it was never exciting before because he didn't comprehend it. An unfortunate example of this is, and this is with children who are a little bit older already, but very often we start teaching children Gemara very, very, very early. Long before they're capable of comprehending Gemara. I mean, let's be real. You know, like a six-year-old's going to understand Gemara? Seven-year-old and eight-year-old is going to understand Gemara. So very often we start teaching kids very, very early Gemara, and often they're not capable of understanding the Gemara that they learn. So what can end up happening is the kid can end up hating learning Gemara. 
it could be the most boring subject of the entire day. Okay, now, there are two solutions to the problem. One solution to the problem is, you can't, I'm I'm speaking here to parents, not to teachers, so I'm not going to recommend changing the school system. Yeah? Therefore, one solution to the problem is that you can ensure that your child never is actually challenged by learning Gemara. And the easiest way to do that is that when you have a six-year-old who there's no way he's going to be able to crack the Gemara, so you can sit with the child and have a cup of hot chocolate on the table and give over the chocolate atari with the child, right? Give it over to the child. And the child sips the hot chocolate and he's sitting there with his Ab and he's having a great time and Ab is telling him Gemara and it's very exciting because it's a big book and there's a lot of words in the book. And the whole experience is a very positive experience. And the kid has no negative experience from learning Gemara because like, it's very easy because Ab explains everything to him. Yeah? Ah, you're depriving the child of cracking the Gemara. No, you're not. He couldn't crack the Gemara anyways. Yeah? And Lamaisa, this is what happens in these systems where usually because of gaiva, the, 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 it's usually motivated by mad, bad news. We push the age of learning Gemara down lower and lower and lower and lower. Why? Because we're going to teach our kids to be the go and you know, at age three they will have finished us. So the way to handle such a system when, when they've pushed the age of learning more down so low that it's ridiculous, there's no way the child's going to be able to master the material is, at least make the experience of learning Gemara something the child can relate to, which is Abba giving over the Gemara. Yeah, that, that's a fine thing. With a little bit of hot chocolate and yetov, you create a positive association. Okay, now, there is another solution. The other solution is not popular, although it's growing more and more popular. And that's this. The other solution is there's a gr- brave group of people on the planet, uh, many actually here in Yerushalayim, who uh, went back to the prescription of the Gemara. And at five, they teach the kids, the kids Mikra, and at 10, they teach the Mishnah, and at 15, they teach them the Gemara. Now, I know this is revolutionary, or maybe I should say reactionary, yeah? But uh, I don't know if you've met kids from these systems. But has anyone here ever met a kid from the, from the system I'm talking about, right, Zilberman? <laughs> Yes. And at, at two years in the yeshiva, there's no difference at all. Two years in the yeshiva, there's no difference. In the yeshiva, there's no difference between one kid and the other. Ah, uh, uh, say, say more. But watch this. These kids who go to Zilberman, they learn how many days a week? Seven days a week. Six. Six. Six, seven. Okay. Now, if, if you told your kid, you assume your kid is in a normal system. If you told your kid you're going to go to school, right, seven days a week, right, long hours, right, so your kid, Mistama, would be, you know, like, you know, upset. I think these kids, my, the rumor that I heard is they go to school 364 days a week. Yeah? So now, if you told, if you're in more a year, if you told your kids they're going to go to school 364 days a year, they're not going to get Shabbos off, they'd, they'd, go, they'd go nuts. Could someone please tell me, the Zilberman kids, how do they feel about going to school seven days a week? Generally, they love it. They love it. Okay. Now, how can that be? They should hate it. Don't we all hate school? Don't most kids complain about the extra hours and yet the Zilberman kids are through the roof thrilled? Yeah? So, it could be, and we don't have any studies to, to demonstrate, but it could be the Gemara was Taka right. <laughs> could be. And it may, it, perhaps what's going on here is that if you teach a child something they're capable of doing, it's a lot of fun for them. And it could be that one of the reasons why kids don't like school is because they're being asked to do things that are above their ability level. And if you demand of a child something that's beyond their ability, you end up turning the child off. Yeah? One of the gedolim here in Shalim once said, when you, when, you teach, when you demand of a child to do something that's above their ability, you're mazik the child and you stunt the child's spiritual development. 
Okay, now, I'm not going to recommend that everyone drop out of whatever system they're in and go to Silverman. I'm just saying that there seem to be two paths here. One path is you can bring the threshold of demand low enough so that it's not over the child's head, right? And you can do that as a parent if the kid just cannot handle what's going on in school. You can do that as a parent by helping the child do the work, yeah? You have to be careful because if the child is capable of doing the work, you want the child to be independent and to do the work. But if the child's not capable of doing the work and you can't switch the child into another system, you certainly don't want the child to be frustrated and hate what he's doing because he's not successful at it. Yeah? Go back to the definition of chinuch. Chinuch is, What I want my child to do for the rest of his life is love learning Torah. That's the goal. If I want my child to love learning Torah, then chinuch is creating an experience where my child loves learning Torah. That's, what, that's going to be the chinuch. If I create any other sort of experience, if my goal is to have a child love learning Torah. So, point number one here in Seasons is you have to be acutely aware of the child's capabilities. Okay, now this leads to an important tangent, and this will come up many times hopefully in the next few weeks. <laughs> I cannot be mechanech a child properly if I haven't chapped where the child is holding in terms of season. I have to know as close as possible everything that's going on developmentally with that kid. There's only one way for me to do that. It's true. Each of us was given special gifts by a Kodesh Baruch to be made in our kids. Guaranteed, you have a special gift for understanding your kid better than anybody else on the planet, better than any psychologist, better than any teacher. However, in order to be mafil that koach, you need time. You have to spend time with the child. If you only see the child now and then, you're going to miss it. So if you're going to catch the season properly, you have to have scheduled time with the kid. There is no one here who's not busy. Everybody here has tremendous things to be doing. Because of that, you have to make an appointment with the child. It has to be that there's a scheduled time the kid knows. Yeah, Even if it's 3 o'clock on Shabbos, I have a chavrusa with Abba. Even if it's just once a week, 3 o'clock on Shabbos, I have a chavrusa. So there's some scheduled time. Without that, there's no hope. If you can squeeze it in more often, gewaldic. But at the very least, I'm recommending, if you're going to be the mashkiach for your kid, you've got to be aware of what's going on with the kid. There's a gadol here in Yerushalayim who for many years was the mishkiach at a very successful yeshiva. And after decades of successful work at this yeshiva, like unbelievably successful work, he left. He left the yeshiva. So I asked this, this mishkiach, I said to him, how could you have left? Look what you were producing. How can you shut down a goodness factory? The man at Koach. He went on to do other work in the, in, in, in the Olam. So how could he leave? So he said to me, I was no longer fit to be a Mashiach. I said, Kvot Arav, what does it look like when you're, not, when you're not fit to be a Mashiach? You look plenty fit to me. And he said to me, I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Because when, when I was a Mashiach at that yeshiva, each morning I would go and personally wake up every boy. And I would sing to him a tehillah that was appropriate for where he was holding. And he sang to each boy a different tehillah when he woke him up in the morning. He said, 
I'm older now and it's difficult for me to wake up each boy with the right to he lost, so I had to stop being a mishkiach. That, that's in our door. That happened in our door. Okay, now, Baruch Hashem, we're not responsible for 150 guys. Yeah? But, we're responsible for 2, 5, 10, 14, however many you got. At least those require that sort of attention. And without that sort of attention, you're not going to catch the season. You talk to people who raise plants. They know that this ivy, he likes the corner. Yeah, this, this plant over here, he likes it over by the kitchen. This one likes Beethoven. This one likes Led Zeppelin. Right? Each one has its own preference. So, like, you know, like you know a plant, you got to know the kid. And the only way is time. And Baruch Hashem, you have the kohos. Hashem made you the perfect father. You just have to be mafilled that now by spending the time with the kid. I'll give you another example of catching the season. It is very, very common that parents, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes because of bad midos, insist that their children sit at the Shabbos table throughout the Sudo. So, if it's the right season, this is a gewaldic thing to do. Because there's a lot to gain from the Shabbos table. Yeah? If this is the wrong season, this will plant antipathy for Shabbos. Because for a little one to sit at a Shabbos meal that can go on 45 minutes, an hour, two hours, sometimes longer, this is a little shayach. He's not, it's the wrong season. You can't plant that, 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 that skill in him yet. It's too early. You can't build that skill into him yet. So what ends up happening is the kid ends up hating Shabbos. And his memories of Shabbos are that he had to sit at the table and it was horrible. So the best thing to do is, if the kid is not ready to sit at the Shabbos table, then you keep him at the Shabbos table as long as possible, be entertaining him. And when he's not entertained anymore, let him go. You know, the easiest way to know when he wants to leave the Shabbos table is he'll get up and leave. That's the easiest way. Agav, I'll mention something else here. We'll come back to this theme again, hopefully as well. When, when I was learning Kolel, I was Meshachachma. And the, the Meshachachma Meshachachma, so he saw that there was a problem with the guys. That the guys did not know how to make the Shabbos table a proper experience, even if it was the right season for the kid. And so, the Meshkiach at Meshkachma, I remember, it's a crazy thing. He started a Chaburah that we, we, we met at lunch. I think we met, I think we met once a week at lunch. And it was a special Chaburah in telling stories at the Shabbos table. And there was like, you know, 30 adults sitting around saying, and then the lion crept up behind the bear. And, you know, we felt a little bit immature, but the reality was that if you want to be machanach your kids in Shabbos, they have to love the Shabbos table. It has to be an experience for them. And that means that Abba has to tell stories. Yeah? He has to tell stories. He has to make it exciting. Right? Divertor, games, songs, the whole thing. Yeah? You can't expect the child to sit at the Shabbos table when not only is Abba not entertaining the kid actively, but there's so many guests at the Shabbos table that Abba can't even talk to the kid. 
I have to talk to this guest. He's very chashev. He came and he wants to talk to me. There's a whole lot of shadows he wants to ask me. I want to ask him some shadows. I have to speak to this guest. And there's these people that ride and ride and behind them. I have to pour the water. But my kid has to sit at the table. This is crazy. There's no way. So if it's the right season, you put all the effort into planting the Shabbos table. If it's not the right season, let it go. Wait till the season comes. And again, here, there might be a season for one minute at the Shabbos table, then five minutes at the Shabbos table when the kid's older, 15 minutes at the Shabbos table, could get up to an hour. Yeah, slowly, slowly, always keeping track of the season. <coughs> Another example. Someone asked me about this tonight. The mitzvah chinuch begins as soon as the child is ready to master the activity. So activities that are physical, as soon as the child can physically perform the activity, then the mitzvah chinuch begins. Mitzvahs that require kavana, all mitzvahs require kavana, but a mitzvah where the mitzvah is a kavana, so you can't be mechanach them in the mitzvah until they can have the kavana. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, I heard from one of the grandchildren. He didn't teach any of his children brachas, ever. Why? Because they learned brach, they learned brachas in school far before they were ready to be mechaven. There's no mitzvah to mechanically say words before you eat food. There's bichlal, no such thing. The, the mitzvah of the bracha is to talk to Kodesh Baruch Hu. And if, if you're not mechavim, nothing happened. You have to be mechavim when you talk to Kodesh Baruch Hu. Tefillah, it's in a vodah You have to be speaking to him. So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky said, what, I'm going to teach my kids to, to say brachas, mitzvah sanashim elumada, so that when they're 25, they can unlearn that bad habit and then learn again how to say a bracha? Chaval. So he waited until his children were ready to learn brachas. Unfortunately, they had already learned them in school by that point. So the idea is like this, that... You want to make sure when you, I'm not saying don't teach your kids brachas. That's not the kavanah here. Teach your kids brachas. But the way to teach the kid bracha, brachas is wait until they're ready to know that they're talking to God. And then tell them, here, we're going to speak to God. Baruch atah Hashem. Okay, now, here we, we slide out into another critical tangent. I recognize I'm hitting many, many, many clawing, but we only have three, four weeks, and I, I'm giving over like three years of material in three, four weeks, so I have to, I have to hit all the clawing along the way. Just went out of my head. Okay, we'll come back to that. Fine. Related. Shul. One of the minyanim that I daven in, there's a guy who he always keeps a newspaper with him in the minion. And whenever there's a break, yeah, or anything like this, he doesn't actually have to be talking, so he pops out the newspaper and he reads the newspaper. Yeah? Okay, Baruch Hashem, he's not talking. He's not talking, he's just reading the newspaper. There's a new machla. I noticed the people between Kaddish and Kedusha, they love to check the stock prices on their Palm Pilot. Yeah? This is a new, a new zach. So, how is it shayach that somebody can be sitting in a mikdash me'at and, like, you know, be involved in the newspaper? How is that shayach? And, and, you know, of course, talking is very, very, very common. So how, how is it shayach that someone can shmooze in shul? They walk into a shul, they just walk, the HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in here. 
He's with us in here. This is a place of awe. So how come we're not in awe? So if you look at the chinuch that many people get for shul, you understand why they're not in awe. What's the chinuch for shul? So the Abba brings his child. The father comes and he davens. It's not yet the season for the child to daven. That season hasn't arrived yet. He's not old enough to daven. Bechlal, he can't do it. But the father brings the child and he gives the child cookies and candy and the child runs around and plays in the shul. So the child learns early on the shul is a place that you play. Then, at 25 or 30 years old, you try to mechanach the child differently. But he's already had 25 or 30 years of chinuch that a shul is a place that you play. And now you're going to try to undo all that chinuch. It's a very, very, very difficult thing to do. The season hadn't arrived for me to give him a proper chinuch yet of what the shul really is. So I, what I did was I was mechanachim in the exact opposite of what a shul is. Therefore, it's me'od k'day not to bring a child to shul for any purpose other than tefillah. Zehu. I'm not talking because it disturbs other people. That's ben Adam Chavero. We're talking about chinuch tonight. I'm, don't bring the child until he can daven. Now, if he can daven for five minutes, so let him come, daven for five minutes, and leave. And the minute that he can't daven anymore, out! Yeah? So he'll know that shul is a place where you talk to God. And from the moment, the first moment that he steps across the threshold coming into the shul, he should realize this is an awesome place. And that should be all of his experience with the shul. He never was in a shul where it wasn't an awesome place. When I first came to Eretz Yisrael, I, my first week in Eretz Yisrael, I walked into a shul in Kirat Moshe, a Sephardi shul in Kirat Moshe. I'll never forget, I, I was there with my buddy, my buddy from Yeshiva, we went and we sat down, we sat in the front row waiting for a, 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 min, a, a minion for Mincha. I'm sitting in the chair, right, and I thoughtlessly cross my legs. A guy walks over to me from across the room and goes, whack, knocks my leg off my, off my other leg. He was like, what are you doing? You're crossing your legs in a shul. Okay. Okay, Sardin. <laughs> they know, they know, yeah. They, mamash, they have a feeling of, of Europe. That, that kid, whoever that guy was, he had a proper chinuch. He understood what a shul was. You want that awe to just for the child. I don't re- recommend hitting your kid in the middle of a shul. I don't recommend that. But... You can create that same awe. The only purpose of a shul is to daven, and that requires being sensitive to the season. When is it to ready to daven? Ladies who are listening to the tape, do not give the child to your husband to babysit in shul. Not just that it's bad chinuch. There's a sur. It's a korban for the child. You can't do that to a kid. Yeah? You would never send your child to some completely inappropriate place for, for babysitting. Have a kid stand in the middle of the street where it's raining. Why? Because it could damage the child. So, so too, you wouldn't send your child to shul for babysitting. That's not the place. That's not, that's not the purpose of, 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 of a shul. Again, please realize tonight, I'm not speaking about shul, I'm not speaking about reading, I'm not speaking about gemara. I'm talking about seasons. Don't pay attention to the concrete illustrations. Try to master the claw. You always have to be looking for the kid. Is this the season? If you think planting, building prayer, when you hit planting, the first question you ask is, is this the season? Okay. Just because we're low on time, let's, let's slide forward into number two. Customized education. The Pasuk says, If you educate a child according to his way, when he grows older, he won't turn away from it. On the spot, the Gon says, Dafka, you should educate the child according to his way. According to the way of the kid. 
And every kid has different tunos. And you have to figure out what those tunos are and then be mishtamish with those tunos in being mechanach the kid. The Gon says there, tunos don't change. So if you figure out who the kid is, don't try then to be mahapach the kid into somebody else because it's not going to work. I, the Gon himself in Mishlei, on the Pasuk, Hold on to Musar, don't loosen your grip. Guard her, for she is your life. There the Gon says, That that a person is alive will spore me to Shaloshavar It's to break a meal you haven't yet broken. You see, people do change. So how can the Gon on this Pasuk, say, the kid is not going to change? And on the other Pasuk, he says, and of course, our whole job is to change. So if you're Medayik in the Gon, you'll see there's two different words he uses. The Gon is Mechalik between Tchunos and Midos. Tchunos don't change. Midos do. What's the difference? So if you look at the examples the Gon brings down there in the Gemara, it's obvious. By Tchunos, all the Midos the Gon brings down are amoral. They're not good, they're not bad. He talks there about a, a, a guy who's born under Mars. A, a guy who's born under Mars, so he's going to love blood. So the Rav says there, the more in, the, in Shabbos, Rav says the guy could be a uh, shochet, the guy could be a moel, yeah? the, guy, the guy could be uh, involved in shichas damim. The key there is, he's going to be involved in blood. He loves blood. He's going to be involved in blood. By the way, I thought this Gemara was like a crazy Gemara, a guy who loves blood. Wouldn't you know, I end up with one of these kids. I have a kid, he loves blood. Right? At the dinner table at night, if we put a fork and knife near him, he cuts up everything in sight. When we go to the doctor, he says, can I have a syringe? You know, like, the kid loves blood. Anything to do with blood, yeah? He's either going to be a moil or a brain surgeon, Yeah. But he, 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 he loves involvement with, with that sort of thing. The key there is to channel the tchun in the right direction. You don't want him to be involved in shiach zdami. So ideally, what should he be? Right? Ideally, he should be a moyal. That's a positive mitzvah. That's the tzaddik. The tzaddik takes a shiach zdami, he's called of shiach zdami, and he, and he ends up being a moyal. A benoni. So he'll be uh, a shochet. There's no mitzvah to shech the animals. If you want to eat meat, you have to shech the animal. But there's no positive mitzvah there, like there's by Mila. Or it'll be a blood letter. Yeah, I think blood letters in the old days were like aromatherapy people today. It was sort of recreational, you know? So, so uh, you, you'd be involved in some sort of you know, recreational blood letting, yeah? All tunos, another way of saying that, all amoral traits are not changeable. Period, that's the kid. If you want to, you can try to smother the child. But if you push him out, if you try to push him out of the derech that he's in, he'll fail in the other derech. And when he's old enough, yasur mimenu, to quote Mishlei, he'll end up turning away from the derech. Why? Because I tried to force him to a derech that was inappropriate for him. <coughs> On the other hand, midos, midos are immoral or moral. Kindness is a mida. Cruelty is a mida. Altruism is a mida. Selfishness is a mida. Anytime that something gets in the way of your avodos Hashem, that's called a mida. Anything that's a mida can change. In fact, it's a mitzvah to change it. 
And those things, we work on our kids and we actually make them change because Midos can change. Okay, now, I want to give you one example, example that was brought by one of the gedolim of our generation of a tuna that doesn't change. <coughs> one of our gedolim said there, there are kids who are natural readers and these kids, you give them the book, and they snuggle up in the corner for the afternoon. You don't see them until four hours later. There are kids who cannot sit and read 20 hours a day. They're active. They move around. I'm going to date myself here. But there was an actor. When I was growing up in America, there was an actor there by the name of Robin Williams. I don't know if you ever saw this guy. But Robin, Robin Williams is a very, very fortunate man. He's very fortunate because if he would have been born 20 years later, they would have put him on Ridlin and he would have never had a career. The guy's all over the place. He's extremely active. That's the nature of the guy. That's his guts. Yeah? Another example of this? Good NCSY directors. Yes? The, their nature is, they're all over the place. They're extremely active. That's who they are. Now, if you have a very, very active kid, if you want to, you can put him in a straitjacket, physical or chemical. But what you're going to end up doing is crushing the kid. Because his nature is that he's active. He jumps around. That's who he is. So if that's his nature, that's a tuna that's not going to change. And if you try to rip that out of the kid, you end up ripping out his guts with it. That is the identity of the child. You see already... When you understand that you're involved in planting, building, and prayer, and you hit that first planting pillar, and you think, planting, every plant requires customized care. If you give the exact same care to an apple tree and a banana bush, neither one of them is going to thrive. The odds are you'll kill both of them. You have to give a different care to each kind of plant. You do not have two children who are the same. Every single one of your kids is different. They're all... We say in Hebrew, chad pami. Sometimes that's how I feel, yes? They're all chad pami, yes? Because of that, you have to learn the tunas of each child and then relate to those tunas. There's, I'm just going to show you here how far ahead of its time, yeah, Chazal were, the Gemara was. One of the most brilliant researchers in ADD, ADHD today is a fellow at the University of Nebraska by the name of Robert Ride. The man holds a patent on... Today, the most widely used device in classrooms in America for mainstreaming ADHD children into normal classrooms. Very, very outspoken proponent of, of his methodology. World-renowned. So, when he first patented his device, he made the cover, I think, I don't remember if it was Newsweek or Time. Does anyone remember where it was? I can't remember if it was Newsweek or Time. So... The, I put into Kindle Soul a picture of his patent. Yes? It's, it's an ingenious device. He explained like this. These kids who can't sit, what we'll do is we'll, des we'll design a device which will allow them to learn in a classroom, giving them the option of sitting or not sitting. How can you do that? So he created this thing. What it is is it, it's, it's, it's two vertical beams of wood. And then these two vertical beams of wood, they're connected to a horizontal beam. Yeah? And on top of the horizontal beam, he puts a wooden plate. Yeah? And the wooden plate is like at a 45 degree angle. Yeah? 
And then what happens is, yeah, when the kid wants to sit, he just leans this thing back. He calls it a stand-up desk. He leans the stand-up desk back in his lap. He's got a desk sitting right in his lap for the rare moments when he actually sits. The rest of the time, when the kid is up hopping around, he's got this stand-up desk in front of him with his material on it. To quote Robert Ride, when a kid is using a stand-up desk, from the chest up, he's doing math homework. He says, from the chest down, kid's dancing like Fred Astaire. Yeah? Now, in, in the kid the soul, does anyone have a copy of the book here? Can I just borrow this for one second? I, 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 put a co- I, I put a picture of this thing, yeah? So, so th- th- uh, this is a picture from, from his patent. You just take a look at this, yeah? <coughs> Yeah. Uh, laws of nature. Agricultural engineering essentials. Here we go. Okay, yeah, like this. Here we go. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Here's a picture of a stand-up desk as Robert Rye designed it. Okay, now. There is no accident that for 3,000 years there was no such thing as a desk in the yeshiva. Yes? You, 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 you walk into any normal yeshiva in the world that has not been affected by Greece, and there are standards. Yeah? That's what we have there. It's not because men have low Ritalin levels in their blood. Yes? The nature, guys, we're all over the place. That is a guy. We bounce around when we learn. Yeah? Now, there's people with higher activity levels and people with lower activity levels. A person likes to sit, let them sit. A person likes to stand, let them stand. Robert Wright found that he had to divide children up into more active classrooms and less active classrooms. That he did. But once he divided the children up into more active and less active classrooms, these ADHD kids could be mainstreamed into the classroom if they were allowed to move around. If a kid is active, let him move. Now, you could always... I, I recognize I'm only speaking to the parents here, which is half the equation. Well, more than half. You're three-quarters of the equation. But... You can always go to the Rebbe, if your kid is very, very active, you can always go to the Rebbe and say, do you mind if the kid stands in back? He's not going to disturb the other kids. Yeah? He won't be in front of them jumping around. He'll be in the back. Give him a shtender, let him stand in back. Yeah? And if the kid can move around, then you might not need to drug him. Or if you do need to drug him, it could be that the, the, the dosage could be lower. Yeah? If you'll allow the child to move. By the way, when they're allowed to move, they learn better. I mean, better is not the word. There's a, a brilliant mathematics teacher in L.A. This story will blow you away. I met this teacher. What ha- here's what happened. There was a Talmud Hachem, uh, a, 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 a young Talmud Hachem who had been learning in Kolo for, for a few years, and he ran out of money. He needed to go to work. So he applied for a job with a day school in Los Angeles. And he had no experience whatsoever. So he walked in, and like, you know, what's the odds this guy's going to get a job? But it turns out this day school had a whole classroom filled with ADHD kids who were not medicated. And they couldn't keep a teacher, yeah? So this guy with no experience walks in. They say, yeah, we have a job just for you. Come right over here this way, yeah? They bring him into the room. They take him to the padded room and lock the door, yeah? Okay, fine. He walks. Now, he's never experienced chinuch. So he has no idea what it's supposed to be like. He walks out at the end of the day, and it was a little bit difficult, yeah. He, he goes home that day, and the problem was he had no background, background in psychiatry. Since he had no background in psychiatry, he didn't know to drug the kids. So instead what he did was he came back the next day with a basketball. So I visited this guy's classroom. The way it works like, is like this. This math teacher, he walks in the morning, he puts a bunch of problems on the board. Then he starts with a basketball. 
Right? He goes around the classroom with the basketball, and he fires the basketball to one of the students. The student grabs the basketball, dribbles up to the board. Solves the math problem, throws the basketball to another student, dribbles up to the board. He gets three basketballs going simultaneously. I was like, whoa, man, watch out! Then the basketballs are flying in all directions. The kids are jumping all around. And what was amazing was, you have an entire classroom of ADHD kids who are not medicated, and they score as high on standardized tests as all the quote-unquote normal kids. He proved it. It works. So, what we know is, if you're dealing with a tuna, don't bother changing it. Is it, is it moral or immoral to be hyperactive? It's not. It just is. That's the guts of the kid. It's interesting. In, 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 the, in the circles that I run in, in the, when I speak to Talmudai Hachamim about these unyanim, they don't call these kids hyperactive. They call these kids more active. You realize hyperactive includes an arbitrary line? Hyperactive means too active. Who drew that line? You realize that up to 40% of kids, of, of, of grammar school boys in America, are called hyperactive on the Connor scale? When 40% of the population has a disease, why you're not dealing with a disease? Why that's called a boy? Yeah? Zeshayach. Rav Noah Orlewick told me he had a terrible case. He had a case of, uh, of a kid who was sent to a, 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 a school. The parents took him to school and they tested him. They said he can come to the school, but he has to go on Ritalin. His parents said he has to go on Ritalin. He's a normal kid. What's wrong? No, we test him and he needs to go on Ritalin. So the parents said, we would like to get a second opinion. We take the kid to the psychiatrist for a second opinion. They took the kid to the psychiatrist for a second opinion. The psychiatrist said he doesn't need Ritalin. The parents went back with a note from the psychiatrist to the school. And they said the psychiatrist says he doesn't need Ritalin. The principal of the school says, we have lots of kids who don't need Ritalin. We give it to them anyways. They learn much better. Now, you understand, the problem is, the classroom is deteriorated into such an inactive place that children can't learn there. The only way for them to learn there is to drug them. Zebaya. So again, we're not going to try to change the classroom. However, you have to know, if your kid is more active, you have to provide an opportunity for him to be more active. Yeah? Certain things help. Children, bichlal, need exercise. If a kid is hyperactive, let him run around. As my children say, I want to get out my merits. <laughs> yes, let them like, get out there and do something. Yeah? Rav Yav Kamenetsky said at the end of his life that he regretted he never learned how to ride a bicycle. Yeah? So, chaval for your kids to share his regret. Yeah? If they, if they can do some sort of exercise, it's better. If there's a problem with Tznias, depending on the community, it could be there's a problem with Tznias riding a bicycle. Why? There's a problem with Tznias? So uh, get a machine in your house. Yeah? Have the kid in your, in your house work out on some sort of machine if, if that's fun for them. Find some sort of machine that is fun. Yeah? In, in my house, we put a stair machine. My kids are addicted to the stair machine. They love the thing. Yeah? So some sort of exercise enables them to move, which is normal for children. Yeah, when we grew up, we used to go out and play. That's what they need. Again, I'm not speaking about Ritalin tonight. I'm speaking about customized education, recognizing the tunus of the child and adapting to the tunus of the child. Okay, we succeeded tonight in getting through the two things that I didn't get through last time. Okay, now, um, what, what, I, what I would really like to do is, a lot of people had excellent questions, which they came up and asked me afterwards. And uh, I mentioned Mrs. Orlewick, the guys were shy, they didn't want to ask me during this year. She said, no, let them ask during this year, they could all benefit. 
So I'm going to stop just a few minutes early here, right? Please think, from the last year, from this year, are there any shilas that you have on your mind? Something that, something that we can be mavar publicly? Help the guys out, yeah. Taking your child to, to shul to a kiddush for a bris, and say afterwards. Ah. Beseda Gamora. So they, they should come in, and they should be a mensch, they should behave like a guttle would behave at a bris, or, or, or a kiddush, or whatever the thing is. They come in, right, if it's a bris, and they can read, give them a sitter. If they can't read, just point out what's going on, whisper, yeah, explain what's going on. And, you know, explain that, you know, normally we don't speak in shul, but because it's a bris, we're allowed to talk. It's not shas, it's fila right now. Yeah, that's why we're allowed to talk. And, you know, whisper, very, very serious. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, be mechanach them and how to be at a bris in a shul. How to be at a kiddush in a shul. Yeah, usually the kiddush is not actually in the... In the, the the sanctuary itself, they usually have it outside. So outside bichlal, there's no Indian. But if there's going to be something going on, mamish, right in the Beit Knesset, so then you have to you have to be mechanachim how to behave in that situation in the Beit Knesset. And it doesn't take away from the mora of the shul, even though the only time they go to shul is when they go to finish the bris. There should still be a mora. In other words, what you, in a shul, you have there has to be a certain yira, and they should they should feel that yira from you when they're in the shul with you. I feel so bad when I see these little kids. And the parents bring them and they give them cookies and the kid is just sitting there playing throughout shul. And even if the kids aren't bothering anybody, nebuch, this kid's going to have to unlearn his whole relationship to shul when he gets older. Because his relationship to shul is he sits and he cookies and he plays. And there's no concept of this is Hashem's house. That's yeah. I mean, started, a four, five-year-old come in, they run around this on Abba's back all the way around shul and then they leave. Ah, so, but they, they, it's, it's, it's not happening. <laughs> Da- and Dafka, people are careful where they daven usually in simple story, especially of children, people are very careful that it's not have charis, it's not crazy. Rather, it's an adin simcha where we dance for the Torah. Yeah? And if a child experiences a proper simple story, they will, they'll, first of all, they'll have, they'll have your the shul and they'll want to learn Torah so badly. But in a if I take them to a place that's hefker and all the kids are just running around crazy, it's a lotov. Yeah. Right. Purim. Yeah, Mama Shtorba. There are, there are many Rebbeim who will not tolerate one extra sound in shul. Yeah? They, if they say Haman's name, you want to be the kind of the minig, you give a bang and they move on. Yeah? They don't allow any of that shtus. Yeah? And the reason is because it's a shul sof-sof. Yeah? So it's usually better if you, if you, if you daven with a yeshiva. But uh, not always. And you have to find a serious group of guys to daven with. Yeah? No, unfortunately, unfortunately, like this, it depends like how far back you go. You go back 50, 60, 100, 150 years ago, unfortunately kids sat at tables and if they moved they got hit. Yeah? And uh, there was an enlightenment and everyone went fry. Yeah? Okay, now, if you go back to Talmudic times though, yeah, in Talmudic times, so there was a base medrash. Yeah? And the, and, the, and the children, when they learned, they learned in the style of a base medrash. That, that was the style of learning. Either they learned with their Abba, or they learned in small groups. It would be Preda, you taught, see the way they were Preda was, was Mechanach kids, but they learned in small groups. And we assume that there was no such thing as a desk. We have no record of desks, you know, ever, ever in Jewish history. The desk is like a sick creation created by the Greeks. Yeah? You know, Bichlal, no one should sit at a desk. But, uh, you know, but certainly children shouldn't sit at a desk. That's a, that's a crazy thing. So, yeah, in a chenami. We, we, and also, it's interesting, we have no record of hyperactivity in Shas. 
there's no there's no machla like that. Such an interesting thing. One of the gedolim of our door told me that certain kids are active, certain kids are not active, and we don't allow those kids who are active to move around. That's also baya. Yeah, we'll get into this hopefully. There's a whole chapter in Tikkun Lasol on on this problem, but but uh, the I mean, in those days, everyone ate organic foods. Yeah, I'm not recommending you know like a crazy diet, but. Uh, if you see that your child is hypersensitive to certain chemicals and it makes them nuts, so then you have to put the kid on a diet. Otherwise, they're going they're, you know, to have a very, very difficult time. And that we know that there are certain chemicals that make kids crazy. Certain kids are ca- sensitive to caffeine. Certain kids are sensitive to what they call low molecular weight compounds. These are the, the food colorings and things like this. And it makes them nuts. Now, certain kids are not sensitive. If your kid's not sensitive, give them junk food. But if they are sensitive, you have to be careful because the junk food will make them crazy. For the kids who are sensitive, it not only makes them crazy, it blows their ability to concentrate and remember. So you could have a kid who's mamish learning disabled from Bombas. Yeah? Zeshayach. Yeah? Uh, and, and, and there's people, there's now I think uh, 20,000 families in America who have their kids on these diets where they don't feed them low molecular weight compounds because the kids are sensitive. They call it the, uh, the fine gold diet. Because it makes the kids nuts, yeah. Uh, it's not, not everyone's sensitive, so this is not a diet for everybody. But of course, you like you have to watch out for these things too. This is part. This is part of being shomer. The chuket teva is that if you, if you know that your kid is allergic to something, you don't give it to them. Yeah, th- th- that's mistaber. Yeah. I, I mean, very very early on, when I look back on my kids now, I see that the tchunas were evident. You know, a few months after birth already. I, saw, I see tunos now that were evident back then. That's hindsight. Uh, all right, so yeah, listen. You, 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 when, when a child's very, very young, it doesn't really make a difference. In other words, with, with, a, with a, a child laying in a crib, there's not much for you to do anyways. Oh, so two, three, you'll actually start to see lots of tunos coming out. Lots of tunos and lots of midos. It just seems very hard to define them because it said that it gets in the way of the Shem. By ourselves, we know it's a Right. But by a child, your child's not listening. And you're making what seems to be reasonable the amount of demand this child. The child's three years old and running the house. Yeah. So where, where it's a powerful child is a child who has an inability to listen. Where you, right. So a child who's not listening. Inability to listen is, that's not, uh, no, it's no such thing. That's, that's bad news. You have, to, you have to fix the kid. But what tuna what could be at root here? Maybe, uh, I'm trying to think, what, could, what, what tuna would be that a kid wouldn't be listening to at this moment? Base. All right, let's say he's, no, no, that wouldn't do it either. No, that's, that's Midos. I mean, there's no reason why a tuna should be responsible there. Strong-willed child, power leader. Uh, strong-willed, in, 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 strong-willed is a tuna. And so, what, what's, you have a strong-willed child, Baruch Hashem. I'm saying, for me, it's difficult to understand when you have an issue like that, which would you know if it's something to be directed at the tuna no, the kid has to listen to you. Even if he's a strong-willed child, he has to listen to you. Now, you can't say, look, my kid's tuna is not to listen to adults. Yeah? <laughs> Zello. Yeah? Like, like this, any time that it's something that a Korsh demands of the child, he has to do. Then you're dealing with Midos. If it's something that a Korsh doesn't demand of the child, forget it. That's a tuna, let it go. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that if I've seen it, the kids go to school much earlier, 
and they, you know, they're trained to soak in rain, and they rise. And it seems that these kids still dive in when they are older, and they don't get as bored as the lifters you get that come to the shore earlier. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I tell you, the, the, the truth is, today I don't see that much of a difference between the Hasidim and the Litvaks. Yeah, the communities have grown so close, and uh, I, I, in terms of community, I don't see much of a, of a difference between them. Yeah. Um, if we were talking about food, what do you do if, um, if all the children are eating compost and other unhealthy things, and they, we don't give the child this unhealthy food, but he wants or... Uh, or he starts taking from others when he sees. What do you do with this? Yeah, th- this is this is a major challenge. the 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 answer is you do exactly what the parents of diabetic children do. Which is you say you can't. It's it's forbidden for you. It's poison. Yeah, and diabetic kids know there are certain foods they can't touch, and they they are trained from the time they're young. For you, this is poison. When I was growing up, I had allergies. All the other kids ate peanuts. I didn't eat peanuts. All the other kids ate chicken. I'm allergic to chicken. Yeah, I couldn't eat chicken. Yeah. So, like, my parents just told me, like, this is poison for you. You can't eat this. But that's at age five, six, seven. From, yeah, from t- I, was, I, was probably, I was probably five years old at the time when, when they put me on this, this, this diet for the allergies. Well, I mean, there, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with an infant... Yeah. Don't put don't put in front of them because no, they're going to make you crazy. He goes to gun and all the kids eat that, and so if we don't give him, then he reaches into other children's sacks and takes from them. So you have to tell you have to tell the teacher that this kid is allergic, and you have to tell your kid he's allergic, and do your best to keep it away from. Him. Listen, if you, you can't do more than your best, so stuff. If the kid eats it, he ate it. Yeah, but if if you know that he's allergic, so you try to keep it away from him. All right, I promise you guys, I wouldn't keep you late. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop here tonight. Uh, good, we got in some questions tonight. Now that I see you're already asking, so then I'll leave more time for questions next time. Next time we have to get through at least these four, and then I've got, yikes, third week. Here's the schedule of events. Next time we've got to zip through three, four, and five. Six is going to take a little time. Six might go over the next session to the, into the, the fourth session, but in the fourth session I've got to deal with discipline and punishment, which is the main thing that everyone wants to hear about. How do you beat your children? So... Uh, <laughs> So the fourth session, God willing, we're going to be spending that session mainly concentrating on, on punishment and discipline. And then the fifth session, we haven't decided yet what we're going to do. If it's going to be just ladies, if it's going to be the men can also come and ask questions. We'll have an Ezra Snashim. It's low pashut yet, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to have everyone's questions answered.